Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Smirnoff Number no. 21 Vodka Ornaments, the perfect white elephant gift. If you go to one of those gift swaps this year, now you don't have to wonder what to get. Uh, you know, finding the right gift can be tough, can be expensive, but Smirnoff brings you a fun and affordable option. Give people what they actually want for the holidays this year, provided they are adults, and that is vodka. It's a two-in-one option. You get decorations, you get vodka in the same gift. So give the best gift this holiday. Holiday season, Smirnoff number no. 21 vodka ornaments. As always, please sip responsibly and only share with people 21 and up. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 383.PR2301, certificate number 48479, the Duchess of Bedford. The Duchess, the Duchess of Bedford. The king and queen are coming to Downton. <laughs> I did not see the Downton Abbey movie, but my wife says I should not see it. I've only watched episode, or I'm sorry, season one of Downton Abbey, and I liked it very much, but I didn't feel like I wanted to see season two because I, I don't like Decline and Fall. The trailer of, like, you don't like when things decline and fall? You don't like the novel Decline and Fall? No, right? I like the novel Decline and Fall. Oh. I don't like it when things decline and fall. Uh, do any of us? Some do. I'm at the age where parts of my body are going to decline and fall. No, I think young people love to see things decline and fall because it means it's it not usher, them. Yeah, it ushers in a new age. Whereas people that are invested in the way things are, like you and me, who are like, don't change the recipe of Kraft macaroni and cheese, and then they're like, oh, it's now made out of soylent. <laughs> that's like, that's no, the recipe. Stop it. It's made out of Mister. It's made out of Robert Kraft. Uh, do, uh, the Downton Abbey trailer cracked me up because first of all. Uh, there's no conflict at all. It's You know how trailers are always like about the, what the stakes are and here's what our hero's going to try to do? Yeah. The Downton Abbey trailer is like, a bunch of us are in a house and look, it's an invitation from the king and queen. And that's that's literally all that happens. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yay, it's like, we're going to have a party. But then, I guess hold your horses. I guess that's the premise of Mrs. Dalloway as well. Maybe it's a very te- tense, fraught thing. Does the movie happen... In the in an alternate Downton Abbey universe, or is it a continuation it's, it's of the Earth story? Two. I mean, does it happen like after it's, World War One? Or is Carson of Earth Two? Do we go back? Where are we in the? Uh, it's after, oh. and it's it's uh, too far after. It's um, 
even though the actors have only aged like seven years or something, it's it's almost twenty, I think, in it Downton takes, Abbey it time. Takes, takes place in nineteen fifty six. Yeah. <laughs> it's all tour groups going through the house. <laughs> and the other thing I like about it is that at the end of the trailer, where normally a movie would list all the stars of the movie, it lists the character names. It's like oh. all your favorites. The Duchess of Bedford. Chives the Butler. <laughs> uh Penny the Upstairs Maid. Uh uh, Gregory, the Randy Gay valet, you know. Who watches these upstairs, downstairs TV shows now? I mean, you, I can't imagine that it is that it is the coveted demographic of 18 to 35-year-old income earners. It's true there's plenty of old PBSers, but um, I don't know, like all the, all the 28-year-old young moms and cool girls are knitting now. So yeah, I guess that's maybe, right. Maybe they're all watching cozy mysteries too. It could be. They're all listening to true crime podcasts. Could be that people are, you know, they go to work all day in sweatpants and they come home and they're like, I just want to watch somebody in a starched collar. This, this is what I'm missing. <laughs> speaking of daily routines, you know, we're speaking to a future audience of, uh, you know, who knows, maybe they're filter feeders or right. maybe they just eat a giant tortoise once a year they could be living under a blacked out sky where there is no differentiation between night and day but schedule uh, is important and uh you know whoever you are you, i know you metabolize nutrients right in some way must now that's something we have in common john and i also metabolize nutrients we like do. you we reach out to you in a spirit of fellowship i mostly eat gems <laughs> is that right <laughs> yeah what, uh, Live on a diet of rubies and emeralds. John is a silicon-based life form. What uh, what do you eat? I'm sure all your podcasts are um, just you talking at length about your your mealtime regimen. But yeah. do, do you Fruit do you shows. do you sit down to three meals a day? No, I do not generally eat a breakfast. I don't or a breakfast. This morning you came into the house just as I was making a weird bowl of of. Uh, Dull bot, bot and some other curry on top of a bed of rice. But that was like leftover food. I looked in the refrigerator. I was like, I better eat that before it goes bad. So you're, is your, do you often have a, a an early lunch? No, I do not. Leftover takeout? I do not eat breakfast and I often don't eat lunch. Uh, I, my, I, I routinely find that it's five o'clock at night before I, I think about food. And then at five, when I do think about food, I'm like, oh, whoa, I I need to eat. Do you and, feel hungry or do you just realize it's a thing people do? I think I start to feel hungry. I feel I start to feel that kind of peckishness where I where my first thought is, well, I'll just go to a Wendy's and get a chicken sandwich. And then my second thought is, don't go to Wendy's and get a chicken sandwich. That's not good for you. That's not you're not living your best life. You should be Now these two thoughts are in conflict. Well, they are, right? Because because I want to I want to be someone who goes and makes it gets out the mix master and makes a uh like a a beet and kale shake but I, but I end up at Wendy's and I get a chicken sandwich they have great chicken sandwiches at Wendy's you're not I don't see you ever making a beet and kale shake not not willingly but then my problem is then I eat a really big meal at 9:30 p.m. okay i'm writing this down so there's some kind of first meal at 5 p.m. yeah and then there's some kind of a supper, a big, a big dinner at 9.30. A big dinner at 9.30, which is the wrong time to eat a big dinner, I think. Well, I mean, by, by skipping breakfast and lunch, you've, uh, you've really embraced the hot uh, dietary fad right now of intermittent fasting. Yeah. The but idea that it's better for your body to go long stretches with no food during the day. 
It's just an instinct, or I mean, it's just my nature. I don't. When I wake up, I'm not hungry. I don't wake up hungry either. Who are these people? I don't know. Eating a, big. Who are these British people eating their lamb chops and kippers beats and me. tomato? I feel like you have to do a different kind of labor than we do. But I don't. I don't. Is really, that true? Do you think that's right? If we had, if we had worked physically with our bodies l- late into the evening, when my mom talks about how they ate in Ohio when they were, you know, like farmers who who didn't have mechanical tools. She said they ate their biggest meal at about one o'clock in the afternoon. That's typical. I think in agrarian societies and even in uh, America to this day, rural families, if they can, but of course any place with a workplace or school schedule, that just doesn't work anymore. Right. But then, you know, they had a little, you know, supper at the, at the end of the day, or I guess they called lunch, supper and dinner, dinner. I think it's the other way around. They called lunch, Lunch, dinner. dinner, That's how my grandparents were. And then dinner was supper. My um, southern grandparents always had dinner and supper. But, you know, I, I used to, before I had these abominable podcasts I had to do every morning, I used to stay up until 4 o'clock in the, in the morning all the time. So having a big meal at 10 o'clock at night didn't – it wasn't outrageous. I was that's, still that's the middle up, of your day. Yeah, I was still up for six hours. Was it, would you keep eating? Uh, the, would my, you eat a hilarious big sandwich with – yeah, a big dagwood. Crazy layers at my, like 3 a.m.? My weakness is the bowl of ice cream immediately before bed. <laughs> you know, Just I get, like all doctors recommend. I get, I get to the- Four out of five doctors. It's like three o'clock in the morning. Ah, oh, I just need a little something. And what I should have is a slice of cheese. But what I what I do is have 1,500 calories of, of vanilla ice cream. It's really the worst sauce. food for it because you eat what seems like a, a normal volume of food. But of course, if you eat- you know, a bowl of soup-sized thing of ice cream, it's 7,000 calories. Right, pure fat and sugar, right. <laughs> right. Uh, my, my own personal uh, calvary every day is that I love breakfast food, or breakfast, as we say in our time. Right. I love breakfast food. I love green eggs and ham, Sam I am. You like them at dinner. Yeah, but I don't like, I'm not hungry at any time when anyone wants to serve them to me. Do you like sweet foods? I do. I have a, I have, I really do have a sweet tooth. I feel like I, I, I need to earn my little treats. But is it a pancake-based sweet tooth? Do you like syrup and Yeah, I mean, I love bread? any kind of... I mean, I love I love pretty much all breakfast... Name a breakfast food. Uh, French toast. Love it. Uh, hash browns. Love it. Joe's Special. Yes, two, please. Uh, uh, wait, wait, what is Joe's Special? Joe's Special is spinach, hamburger, um, uh, eggs, and... I think like uh, Parmesan like- cheese all mixed together in a scramble. It seems like something only one restaurant has. Oh, and onions too. Well, it's some somewhere there's some titular Joe mm. that was like, here's what I want. Onions, spinach, eggs. Uh, I'm Joe and I'm special. And they made it. And then the guy sitting next to him at the bar was like, I'll have that. And pretty soon it was just like an Arnold Palmer. It I, swept lo- the I world. love every story like that <laughs> where like just one guy, you know, one guy named Caesar is like, I'll put uh, Parmesan cheese and croutons on my romaine lettuce. Yeah. And then the world is forever and changed. And one herring. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody wants, a little a little anchovy. Uh, what about a breakfast burrito? Yeah. Huevos like, rancheros. I like the egg-based. I like all the breakfast meats. Bacon more than sausage, but I like them all. And I love the idea that you could just have a you know a big stacks of different kinds of bread that you can pour butter and 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 sticky sweet things on. I mean, what, what, a, what a gift. What about a bowl of rice with a uh, half of a scoop of Dalbot and half of a scoop of chicken tikka masala <laughs> on it for breakfast? It's true that my idea of breakfast is extremely, uh, American. Like I feel like there's really no, I like, I like going to 
France and just having some juice in a pastry. That's nice. And uh, I love that you can get mushrooms with your bread with your breakfast in the UK. But, yeah. you know, growing up in Blood Korea, sausage. everyone would just eat. Yeah, got to have some. Blood sausage haggis. and tomato. Those great breakfast foods. Like growing up in Korea, you'd ride the bus in the morning and everyone would smell like kimchi because they just got up and had rice and kimchi. And it's not a specialized breakfast food there, but it's a very, it's a very common what you have breakfast it's it's not unusual at all there's there's other kinds of porridgey things you could have but but rice and kimchi is pretty normal and to me it's not just eating in the morning like i just like to have heavy comfort food and i'm not hungry for it at 9 a.m so when am i going to eat it right i'm never happy when i go to a restaurant that serves breakfast but isn't a breakfast restaurant i look at the clock and ask myself, are we past the French dip line? What time is the French dip line? Well, that's it changes depending on where you are and what the situation is. But I think everyone agrees that at 10 o'clock in the morning, you can't order a French dip unless you're going to break the surly bonds. You're, of, a, you're a serial killer. Yeah, it's just like, what? But at 11.30, you certainly can yes. order a French dip. So can you order a French dip at 11? It's around 11. That's yeah. the real gray area, right? So this is the thing. I'm often in a in a breakfast con- uh, situation at 10.45, and I go, I can't order a French dip, but I don't want a stack of pancakes. And so I settle on a huevos rancheros because, I'm, because I don't want sweet. I want savory, but, I, but it's too early to get a do you, you feel know, like hamburger. do you feel like you can't order just a, a omelet or a Benedict or something? Is it too late for that? Eh, no, I mean omelet. It's just because I'll like eat that at any time. Snooze. Oh, it just I feels see. like a snooze. You know, I, I don't. I don't know if you're aware, but I make uh, I make egg in a cup, scrambled egg in a coffee mug. I'm not aware. It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful dish that takes one minute to cook. Microwave. You put a you, you crack an egg in a mug first. Take an egg in a mug. You uh, throw some salt and pepper in on it. You put it in the microwave for 30 seconds. It'll come out. It's already like cooking. Stick a fork in there. Throw some cheese in there. Maybe a little diced up ham. You hit, hit it with the fork. Just sort of half scramble it. Back in the microwave for 30 seconds. You got a cup of, you got a mug of delicious scrambled eggs that you are, are indistinguishable from what you would get in a restaurant for 50 or $100. That sounds great. Yeah. Think of all the money you saved. Yeah. Like I can't afford not to be eating these. That's right. Maybe if you, if you want to want to use two eggs, you're going to need one of those big mugs because the eggs do expand. I'm not a Scala, a scrambles versus omelets snob. Like no. to me, it's all the same. I don't care if it's a beautiful, fancily turned omelet or if it's just all scrambled a, around in a pan. A great omelet is a thing of beauty. A poor omelet is a thing of unbeauty. I think it's a thing of duty. D O O T Y. Hey Miles. Hey. It's me, Jack. <laughs> I know. Right here. Thank you. Right next to you, buddy. Right next to me. Yeah, usual. just like at work. Hey, uh, I wanted to join with you to tell people uh, <laughs> to tune in to a very special episode, special app yeah. of TDZ, the yeah. Daily Zeitgeist. This is actually, look, I know you saw the social media. You mm-hmm. saw us at the LA Auto Show. You said, what are these two juggernauts of podcasting doing there? <laughs> when Mazda calls me up and they say, Miles, we know that you're a loyal Mazda owner. We want to align with you mm. because you get it. Yes. And I said, you know what? 
I'm willing to answer the call and help ding, ding. help people understand the power of it. So what we did is we actually got to record a special episode inside the new Mazda CX-30 uh, where we talked about kind of like flow states and yeah. feeling alive and how we feel alive. What makes us feel alive? Yeah. It was really dope to actually record inside the car. I got to press a lot of buttons and make them mad because they're like, please don't fumble around in here. Yeah, but I said, I'm a it. child. I like to explore. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, if you actually want to check out the first ever CX-30, check it out at MazdaUSA.com slash iHeart. Or if you're trying to check it up IRL, then pull up to the local dealership today. This idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, it's presented as a medical fact. Right. In fact, it's an advertising slogan. Quoi? I think it comes from the early 20th century, and I, I almost think it's, I think it's grape nuts or Post or whoever makes grape nuts. Like, they, they just said breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and it's the equivalent of McDonald's makes you happy or right. have you driven a Coke lately or, or, or Don't, or don't or stick anything in your ear bigger than your elbow, which was a uh, advertising slogan for... <laughs> Uh, elbows, elbow pads. <laughs> but now we take it like, uh, you know, vaccinate your kids, like as if it's, right. you know, well, as we all know, breakfast is the most. No, they were just trying to sell you grape nuts, you idiot. Right. And nobody would eat something that with the composition of gravel, although I love grape nuts, honestly. <laughs> well, I, don't, I still don't understand why it sells with that name. Grape nuts. No grape, no nuts. Originally, I think the sugar was maltose, which was a grape sugar. It was derived from grapes. Oh, I see. So it's like some kind of raisin syrup was the uh, sweetener. I see. And it's it's crunchy like a grape. Seems like nuts. They've yeah, used like modern technology. Grape. And you know, it's cereal was one of these things where it was like, we've done it. Science has, has improved meals. Right. Because we have done these new things to grains that you could never do before. Yeah. Marky Post uh, gave us all uh, enemas. <laughs> when Marky Post invented cereals, it was a huge, huge day. Did she do it between episodes of Night Court? She did. <laughs> uh, and so grape nuts were one of these things where it's like, look, we've made like a new, it's like a nut, but it right. didn't come off a tree. It's like space food. It came from science. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Today it's like buying freeze dried ice cream and being like, I'm an astronaut. We. Yeah. That's how cereal is born, with the weird sex stuff, which we should probably do. At oh, some the point. cereal sex stuff for sure. Yeah, we we haven't done any well, of that. Well, that's why I said Marky Post. <laughs> she was. It's giving me a Marky Post. But the idea that breakfast is, uh, you know, the most important meal of the day, or that all these um, meals are divinely ordained constants in society. Right. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not, not true at all. Lunch is at noon. Dinner's at five. And we today we like, we organize the work day around them. You know, you, you, you take lunch just because it's assumed. Well, of course, I am going to eat a smaller version of dinner at 1230. My daughter thinks about lunch so much. And then when she gets out of school, she starts thinking about a snack if she gets a snack, she starts thinking about dinner. My theory is this is something we've done by giving people um, a, a break associated with food. Right. I mean, we didn't mean to just make them associate f- food as a thing you do not to have to work. You, you know, we didn't make them think of food as a reward, but that that was the effect. Of, it really is. I think about that. I think about that quite a bit. Right. I work from home, and it's so hard just to not stop in the middle of a sentence that's not going well, and just walk to the fridge and kind of gaze over my domain for 45 mm-hmm. seconds mm-hmm. because it's easier than working. I used to work in a bank and at noon I would go into the um, employee lounge. You'd go into the vault and read Charles Dickens and then the bombs I, fell. I would I would go in and sleep for an hour. 
Oh, is that right? Yeah, I didn't want lunch. I, what I wanted was a nap. A That's long your nap. reward. Yeah. Uh, so, like breakfast, for example, um, in medieval Europe, it was very unfashionable to eat breakfast. I'm not going to say that the Greeks or Romans or Egyptians never eat breakfast. Somebody, really? Unfashionable, you say? Not even unfashionable, but like sinful. The idea that you would wake up and eat before even going to mass. Oh. Right, because there's a, there's a religious component to your morning in the Middle Ages. Right. Uh, Thomas Aquinas specifically warned against many kinds of gluttony, and one of them was prepropery. Prepropery. Which is just liking breakfast. It's, it's the sin of eating too early. Prepropery, the sin of liking breakfast. <laughs> Basically. Wow. Because there were other kinds of gluttony for eating too ardently, you know, enjoying your food too much, you know, eating quantities that are too large. But this is specifically getting up and just wanting to eat food. So it's the opposite of the grape nuts philosophy would be the Thomas, Thomistic or, as I say, Aquanasian take on breakfast. And there was also um, an assumption that came with this that it was something low class people did. Not just low morals, but low class. Uh-huh. A working man, of course, would have to get up and bolt down some porridge before he got to the fields. Blech. But um, people of quality would never do that. Right. Um, people of quality, we, which we talk about all the time. Our 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 future um, like skateboarding wombats are like people of quality. What are you talking about? But it, it it's an obsession in our time, right? And or you, it was. I think we're we're leveling now. But yeah, you and I are convinced that we would have been in any time. We would have been the right sort of people. Sure, pharaohs, American pharaohs. <laughs> um. So if you don't eat breakfast, what do you eat? Just basically two meals. Like, and it was. In an agrarian society, it was like your uh, your mom's rural upbringing. That that has not changed in a thousand years. There'd be a big meal, pork chops at at one at in the, the afternoon. middle of the day, yeah. and then when everybody came in, there'd be a, a smaller, probably cold meal at night. Maybe you know leftover whatever from the dalbat. And I feel like as recently as like me being a kid visiting my grandparents in the country, that's what it would be a big a big Sunday dinner, and then. Cold cuts from that for, you know, everybody, oh. everybody kind of had their own cold supper. Sure. You go in and, and take a little bit of turkey off the, off the bottom and make a little plate for yourself. Huh. It's become, now that I said Sunday, I realize it's kind of become a, in, in our time, it's not unusual for Sunday to have the, the middle of the day be the big meal. Right. Christmas and, and uh, mm-hmm. Easter. I mean, those are about Thanksgiving. Those are days where we have dinner at three. We kind of split the difference on Thanksgiving. I feel like we eat around three or four. Yeah. Too late for lunch, too early for dinner. Well, look, my family has never eaten a lunch in their lives. Why? And why is that? Because they're people of quality? Well, we just can't get a, we just cannot get organized around noon. a holiday lunch. Exactly. Or any kind of lunch. I mean, we either have lunch, we either have brunch, which is a breakfast lunch. It's a new invention, as, as we will see. Uh, we or, talk we about have, the invention of or we have, you know, two o'clock lunch just because I, I, I don't know. You try and, you try and wrangle cats. That's like getting my people to get in a car at the same time. I try to wrangle cats all the time. Uh, the industrial revolution changed the, uh, changed the two meal day. The problem is that now people are no longer able to just kind of wander in from the fields during the hottest part of the day and have a refreshing Ham. Ladle of water and a, yeah, and a slice of ham. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, they're in a factory all day. And so dinner gets pushed later to the end of the workday. And that's kind of what makes 
the evening meal, the big meal. That's the Industrial Revolution gives us that. That dinner gets pushed so later that basically supper has now died. Supper is now pushed out of the eco- the meal ecosystem. Because leaving the factory and walking all the way home, it, it, it uses up all the time. So you take a lunch pail to work. Yeah, what happened is out, outside fa- – nobody had ever thought of this, that you could set up lunch luncheries where people work. But uh, very quickly after the, the big factories and plants appeared in the major European and then American cities, little canteens started to appear nearby because they knew people – given time, would duck out for a bite to eat uh, a hot meal because otherwise they're just bringing whatever cold foods right. are in their little pail. And uh, supper goes away with, with two exceptions. Um, you might want a small snack before bed. Uh, or if you're, uh, if you're wealthy, it could be, or, or you know, young and have fun. I'm not young and fun, but if you were, it could be just a late party. So supper became something that the cool, smart Cosmopolitan set did at night. Um, or just, you know, working-class people, gra- so tired after work, they grab a quick snack and hit the hay. So supper kind of, um, the idea of a late meal kind of dies. And to this day, I don't know, there's not much, there's not a lot of late, in your rock and roll lifestyle, there are definitely people in diners at 1 a.m. Right. But for most Americans over 30, most people in the West over 30, that's just not a thing. Well, that bums night me eating. out. Do you wish that, you think there should be more night eating? I do. You know, Seattle is terrible. Uh, Seattle shuts down at 9 p.m. It's so awful. And, you know, when you're in New York, when you're in, I mean, San Francisco is not that great either, but in Los Angeles, if you're hungry, you can go to a restaurant. And in Los Angeles, you're almost certainly going to see Andy Dick there. But in, you know, in New York, you can get a full, you know, whatever you want, a full complete, you get, you know, Russian. Uh, Piroshkis at, at three o'clock in the morning, and the place the place might be full and full of people, yeah. and there's a reason, and it's because not all of us get up at six o'clock in the morning and and exercise for an hour before going to work. And in New York, a lot of the people that do have those high powered morning jobs are doing an incredible amount of cocaine or amphetamine. Yes, so they're they're okay. Uh, they don't need food. They can have a porterhouse steak well, at, 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 at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's like their time. But the, I, but the, you know, in Seattle, I, you can count on one hand the number of places you can get any kind of any kind of food. It's not that we're particularly sleepy, although maybe for many years we were kind of Scandinavian, and that was not our ethos. But yeah. it's just that most American cities are not big enough. Like most American cities, roll up the sidewalks pretty early. Yeah, there's like five places. I feel like there should be an entire separate culture that where things do not open until noon and they are open until 8 p.m. Do you like, you mean when zoos have a nocturnal house and yeah. like there's there's a there's a little part of the zoo that observes this totally other world where day is night and night is day. They turn off the, turn on the lights at night and let the armadillos sleep and the lemurs and the whatever. That should be we should have that in in uh, the industrialized world today. Because you're a porcupine. You you want to wander the streets at night. I want to wake up when I wake up, and then I still have to go to the DMV sometimes. And I still have to, you know, there's a there's a store over here that closes at 3 p.m. And I'm like, who comes to your store? Or Oh, this is another thing. Any museum that might conceivably attract old men, like car museums and airplane museums, uh-huh. they close at 5 p.m. All museums close at five. Their it, margins must be so thin. Like, what are you talking about? Like, no, who goes to the museum at eight in the morning? Nobody. <laughs> open the museum at 3 p.m. and stay open till 11. Some museums do have one night a week where they're open late. One and it's night for pe- a week. That's right. Yeah. Society has thrown you a bone. Erp. <laughs> like, you're not going to be happy unless you have full and equal rights. 
That's exactly right. Thank you. <laughs> I just want to know who goes to a car museum at eight in the morning. Uh, a significant enough number of people that 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 those are the hours they choose, or is it just that they're stuck in an old world thinking? They're stuck in some old universe. Well, here's the thing about olds: is they are up and mall walking yeah. at at eight a.m. Yeah, I know. And they, and if some of them volunteer at the cool car museum, they're that, that's that's something that gets them out of bed. They're raring to go stand behind a a thing at an empty museum. In an empty museum. It's an empty museum. Uh, docents. It's that's the problem with the world. Docents. <laughs> if we weren't always catering to these docents, um, the uh, the dawn of uh, electric lighting, of course, is what lets dinner be pushed back. You know, right. you can. It's not a problem to 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 cook uh, and sit or, uh, to cook a big meal, an elaborate meal, and sit around a family table at, at seven p.m. Yeah, which where it would have been for right. for most of history. You don't have to burn fifty candles. Um. Lunch, uh, for, you know, for working men is a quick, you know, it's a quick, the whistle blows and you can eat out of your, uh, little pail or you can run to this, the canteens and cafeterias that have appeared near your factory for uh, middle to upper class people. It's, it's the province of women. You know, mm. the idea that lunch is an elaborate meal is becomes kind of an effeminate uh, idea. I see. Sure. A tea. Right. If, well, tea doesn't exist yet. Oh. How many minutes are we in? We have not. I just realized we haven't even mentioned the Duchess of Bedford. Twenty-six minutes. This is good. We should mention the Duchess of Bedford, okay, right? Sure. I mean, so a couple meals have been invented since the Industrial Revolution. You mentioned brunch. Yep. The purpose of brunch uh, then, as now, was for uh, drunk people—people people who have had too much to drink. <sighs> Thank God. Uh, Thank God for us. A, a, a British writer named Guy Berenger in Hunter's Weekly is a, is a is an anti-docent John Roderick type who's mm-hmm. who's been out late mm-hmm. and he's uh I mean you you no longer are wake up hungover because right. you've turned over a new leaf right but, or I'm perennially perpetually hungover depending <laughs> on how you want to look at it did you just get your 10 uh, year hangover chip <laughs> <laughs> I used to enjoy being hungover but I was what one is, of those people What is that, enjoyable about being hungover I mean, it just intensifies. It's, I don't you know, want to know what it intensifies. Kind of, it slows you down. You've kind of got a little bit of a fog on everything, but it's a sort of jovial fog. This was true for me. I think a lot of people have terrible headaches and they feel awful, but I was just like a little drunk still. Burbaderbader. I I was a but I was a I was a happy drunk. It's your it's your it's your uh, weed. You, you just yeah. you need to have it wake up and have a relaxing, foggy morning. Just kind of roll in, get a cup of coffee, have a little bit of a cookie or something. Everything just seems kind of funny. So Guy Berenger, knowing that he and his smart set of friends are not going to be up for breakfast, thinks you should be able to have a breakfast-like food, maybe with a little hair of the dog, in the late morning. Sure. Uh, and he... Uh, the name is not centralized for, for apparently for many years, punch magazine calls it blunch. Yeah, sure. Blunch blunch. That's that would be your, your natural go-to. It would not be. Here's the problem. Blunch is one sixth breakfast, right? It's and lunch. five, six lunch. You've given, you've given the store away to lunch, right? It, it should be at least brunch or at least or it could even be brunch. It, it should be brunch. Brunch. If we want to give equal time, it but would brunch, be brunch. Yeah. But brunch doesn't sound like breakfast or lunch. It just sounds like, why not just call it branch? Branch seems like um, it's a violent verb. Branch. Like you might get in a wrestling match and your opponent might branch you. Yeah, no, I don't want to get branched. But I would get brunched. I'd definitely get blunched. So brunch has existed since the 1890s. And as long as uh, young people are 
doing terrible things to their bodies at night and then not getting up at the time God and Aquinas intended on Saturday morning, there will always be brunch. Well, uh, you're very I, sl- you're very sleepy right well, now. I need a brunch. I always associated when when I became aware of the concept of brunch, which wasn't I wasn't always in my life. I believe I in the 1980s was introduced to the idea of brunch. It felt like a, a an effeminate meal, a uh, Sunday brunch you would have. But that's ladies with mimosas only. But it was ladies. It wasn't a thing that you know. It didn't seem like a hard bitten Bukowski meal no brunch bukowski has breakfast and he has lunch he has brunch, if anything <laughs> or branch Bran- brunch 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 sounds like a popeye brunch. villain the other meal that has been invented within human memory i mean not within living memory but like surprising you know almost as close to it as brunch is uh something we owe to the duchess of bedford who her she was born anna maria stanhope in 1808 to a good family, I think a family of royal courtiers. And uh, things got even better for her when she married Francis Russell, the Duke of Bedford, uh-huh. which made her the Duchess of Bedford. And I believe the Marchioness of Tavistock, but I don't understand. That seems like I'm just making stuff up. So let's leave it aside. The thing is, if you marry a Duke, you just jumped way up the ladder. And he's a good Duke. Like I assume some of these Dukes are just kind of hereditary yeah. losers. Yeah, they're lesser Dukes. Out in, the, out in the, you know, some awful part of the Northeast. But, but this is a big Duke. The Duke, this is a very good one. His brother, in fact, John Russell, uh, later becomes prime minister. So she's politically connected. She's got these royal connections. And as a result, she becomes one of Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting. In fact, she's one of the ladies of her bedchamber uh, at the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. She spends five years as, as one of the ladies of the bedchamber, which is not as sexy as it sounds. Ladies of the bedchamber. You sounds w- pretty sexy. You wish you had a duchess in a big hat to be your lady of the bedchamber. But in this case, I think it's much more just your, your proximity to the queen is, is where all the power is. It's, right. uh, you know, you're the one that gets called for a drink of water or to help her uh, 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 lace up her corset. Oh, so it is a job. It's not just that you sit near her bedchamber also ringing a little bell to get cakes brought to you. I guess I shouldn't say lacing up the corset because you're right there is a servant class for that of course, of you're course, right but but no it is, it is for like companionate things and, and and the kind of things that you know uh today we, you're not going to meet royalty but you will you might run across wealthy or famous people with assistants yes who are supposed to run well, and get your stationery or uh see if anyone's in the lounge and that's right. that would be uh uh, the Duchess of Bedford's the assi- job. The assistant I always want is someone who leans over and whispers the name of the person who's walking up <laughs> right now. When I ran for city council, I had a I had a, someone who followed me everywhere. And when I would enter a room, they would be right over my shoulder, and somebody would be like, "Hey, John Roderick," and the the little voice would say, "It's he's the guy that runs the you know the county department of corrections." And this is not schizophrenia. You had a guy for that. I had a person. Uh, a, a, um, a female person. And it made, it gave me superpowers because mm. then I'd be like, Bill, how are you? Great. How's it going over there at the County? And it was because I could take it from there. Right. As soon as I knew who it was. Uh, but it made me just seem like a genius. I don't even need that in a campaign. I need that in regular life. That's what I'm saying. If I just had somebody that was like, 
I just need somebody to say, Ken, that's Ben Gibbard. You've made him, you've met him six times. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's the front man of death. Thing for cutie. Well, I mean, and I would like somebody that was like your pin number. is five seven four four one. I mean, I have the, I have my notes app and my Gmail where yeah. I'm always sending my sending future Ken things. I don't want him to forget, but, uh, <laughs> but you don't have it in social scenarios. No, it's you know? terrible. You can't, well, I do it all the time. Look at my phone and go like, who is that? What's the name? And I forget that I haven't put in all the metadata I need to. So I'm like, who was the guy that used to work at, you know, at cellophane square. And I, I put cellophane square. In. No, it's not a nineties friends. No, I like, and so I don't have the metadata that would call him up. I know his name is in my phone and I'm doing but this who? as he's walking across the room. <laughs> I can see him and he's like, John. And I'm like, this is a good video game idea. People come at you at a party and it's not first person shooter. It's first person. Like yeah. who, uh, who is contact this? app user. Uh, we were at, um, Mindy and I were at a movie this weekend and some guy in the lobby sees me and is like, Hey Ken. And I do like, Hey, hey there. How's it going? Feller. Hopefully the asymmetry of the no name is not the first thing he notices. And he's like, is Mindy here? And I was like, yeah, she went in ahead of me. I was parking the car. Are you, uh, I assume we'll see you in there. And he's like, no, it's sold out. I'm, I'm kind of standing by. And I was like, okay, well, good luck. I hope you get in. And I go into Mindy and I was like, did you see the guy in the lobby? Who is that? He asked about you. She was like, what? No, who is it? I was like, I don't know. He's he's like a friendly Asian guy. And she was like, oh, I think that's a guy we always see who always says hi and asks about me by name because he's read your Wikipedia entry. Oh, so not a friend, <laughs> just a stranger. Well, a stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet. That's true. But I'm sure this, this guy has probably introduced himself to me multiple times and been like, how are Mindy and the kids? Right. Uh, and I... And you're like, hey. So in that case, maybe it's good to not uh, to not be too chummy. I don't know. Ken, what do you do uh, about uh, Caitlin and Dylan on the internet? Do you just let them have unfettered access to the web? When they were littler, that was not a problem. It was cute that they were on Club Penguin or Webkins all the time. Right. And now I literally spend 90% of my waking hours thinking, what are my children getting up to online? And you've talked about trying to to limit uh, their their access, and then you find that Dylan's got a some burner phone under his bed, and he's in there. This literally happened. Like with both my kids, I've had issues where we thought we had smart rules about screens and devices, and nature finds a way. <laughs> you know, like are, do you have policies for your daughter? Well, no, because I'm still in that stage where her interest in the internet is just like, can we watch Lady and the Tramp again? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's problematic. Those were the days. So I have often wondered, like, how, how do you solve this? Like, you know, it's it, there should be, you should be able to enforce whatever your family philosophy or household rules are around screens and devices and i've wished that there was a way to do it well there is a way and it's uh it's called circle uh circle is basically a way to manage your family's online time across all their connected devices inside and outside your home yeah i've been trying this out they sent they sent me a circle home plus a little circle app and it really does all the things i was looking for you know filtering who can go to what sites like enforcing time limits on when it's okay to be surfing and when it's not like which things do you not want your kids signing up for you know you can have a profile for each person on there it's customizable and it's it's every uh device on your network so my son's little burner phone workaround from season four of the wire would not work anymore yeah he could not outwit the circle home plus so the only thing he can do now is go out to the parking lot of a of a supermarket with his friends and look at their phones yes i mean yeah. you, you know there's 
there's always going to be things to worry about with your kids. But like with Circle, there's one less thing to worry about. Well, right now, our listeners, which is to say the Futurelings, get $30 off of a Circle Home Plus when you visit meetcircle.com slash omnibus and enter the code omnibus at checkout. If this is an issue in your home as it is in ours, in your era as it is in mine, I encourage you to check this out. Again, that's $30 off when you visit meetcircle.com slash omnibus and enter omnibus at checkout. meetcircle.com slash omnibus. Enter omnibus to save $30. Not very long ago, I was at some event and I walked up to, or somebody came over to me and I was like, hey, you know, I knew the person and I was like, how's it going? He said, great, you know, just just working as a publicist at this event. And I was like, how long have you been doing that, publicist, working in publicist at this event? And he was like, the entire time I've known you, 12 years, I'm, <laughs> I'm the official publicist of this event. And I was like, of course, I knew that. The thing about heads-up displays is like when we have a little chip in front of our retina or whatever, the person will appear and it will not only say his name, it'll yeah. be like uh, – You've already asked him where he works. Right. You, you know, you, you've met his kids once. Right. Here's what he does. Let me replay for you the scene <laughs> just briefly. The last time you saw one another, so you can recall it. And we'll all become hyper aware of this little eye fleck that people do when they meet you. Yeah. When he's like, oh, he's, he's like, oh, he's re- he didn't know. He's remembering right you're now. You're reading my Wikipedia page. <laughs> so uh, while she's in service to Queen Victoria, doing these kind of assistant tasks, the uh, Duchess of Bedford. The Duchess of Bedford uh, does two newsworthy things. Otherwise, total footnote in history. Basically, you know, one of Queen Victoria's many courtier ladies-in-waiting and a sister-in-law to a prime minister. That's not enough to get you into the history books. But she does do two kind of interesting things. The first one, which is a bit of an aside, but I don't want to skip it because it's uh, a little bit juicy, is because she is near the center of the Flora Hastings affair. Mm -hmm. Do you like royal intrigues? Mm -hmm. But you don't watch Downton Abbey. Flora, so early in Queen Victoria's, and even before, uh, Flora Hastings was a lady-in-waiting to the Duchess of Kent, Queen Victoria's mother, the the equivalent of the Queen Mum Mm -hmm. at the time. And this was a time when uh, the Duchess of Kent, Queen Victoria's mother, and her Hanoverian uncles, Mm -hmm. the strict Germans that are always around the palace, are uh, indulging in something called... Whist. (laughs) In addition to whist... The uh, the Kensington system, which is what they called their genius idea, whereby they would keep Queen Victoria from knowing any, or the, you know, the future Queen Victoria, and then in her early years, Queen Victoria, from knowing anything that was going on, so they could pretty much run Britain as de facto regents on her behalf. This was the Kensington system. Yeah, they had a name for their kind of semi-legal. Maybe there's a name for today, the thing that keeps the, the, the wrong paper off Trump's desk or whatever, you know? Wow. The Mattis system or whatever. Uh, this was going to backfire on them when she became the longest reigning queen in history. <laughs> well, and what you have to remember is they didn't know that. Right. right. <laughs> Nobody was like, uh, why are you doing that to Queen Victoria? And they're like, <laughs> oh, she's not Queen Victoria yet. But it's it's basically a huge conspiracy. Don't let her know anything that's going on. And Victoria knows, and she's pissed. And she knows that her own mom is in on it because, you know, her, you know the, the queen mom has nothing to do. She's out the door once the once the heir takes to the throne. Right. So why not? So it's in the, the mom's conspiracy. interest to keep the uncles holding the reins because you know then she's got some hold on power. Uh, and uh, so there's a, a courtier named John Conroy that Victoria hates because he was complicit with her mother and uncles in the Kensington system. And later on in 1839, when Victoria is queen. Uh, 
Lady Flora Hastings. So she, at this point, uh, Queen Victoria has kept her mom and the whole former Kensington apparatus as far away from London as possible. They've basically been exiled to far corners of the realm where they can have little influence on palace affairs. Uh, but one of la- the Duchess of Kent, the Queen Mother's ladies-in-waiting, is a woman named Flora Hastings, who uh, begins to experience abdominal pain and swelling oh, in 1839. boy, I know what this means in 1839. When she, well, if you've ever seen a woman clutch her stomach, at, a woman in a movie who coughs is going to die. Okay. A woman in a movie who uh, looks, looks her, a little queasy is, yeah. is going to have a baby. Oh, I see. And that's what was going on then. She visited, when she, when Flora Hastings visited the royal physician, he was like, well, I can give you an examination. And she was like, nope. And so everybody in the palace starts saying, Lady Flora is not married and Lady Flora is pregnant. And she still has enemies left over from this, uh, from the Kensington system. And one of them is the Duchess of Bedford. Not the main one, but the uh, Baroness Lezen, which... Hmm. Kind of seems like a fake lady in waiting from some kind of Victorian erotica. Right. <laughs> Baroness Lezen s- swanned into the room. Baroness Lezen wearing only, uh, well, we'll leave it there. Only 14 petticoats attracted the eye of every suitor. Uh, and, and, and our character, the Duchess of Bedford, begin to circulate rumors to the effect that Flora Hastings is pregnant with John Conroy's baby. And is uh, the Duchess of Bedford working on behalf of Victoria to discredit John Conroy by making him the, the, uh, the, what would you call it? The seducer? The father. It certainly flatters the queen and uh, reinforces her, her prejudices and uh, interests if the father is John Conroy. Right. So of course that's the kind of thing you tell the queen everyone's whispering about because you know if the queen hears it from, here's the palace gossip from you. That's that's a point in your favor, right? Uh, and unfortunately, in this case, uh, this has a unhappy ending. Um, the, the queen is writing in her journal that her enemies Conroy and Flora Hastings are having a baby, and how can she use this? And Lady Flora even has to uh, write an open letter to the examiner saying, "I have heard the scandalous rumors about me, and a certain foreign lady has been speaking." The Baroness Lezen was. Uh, I don't know, Russian descent, maybe? Of course. Anyway, Lady Flora, months later, the symptoms are not getting better. She does consent to an examination, and it turns out she has uh, advanced cancer of oh. the liver. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's a huge tumor. Wow. And... This became less funny all of a sudden. Yeah, and Queen Victoria realizes it's become less funny, and Queen Victoria feels awful and goes to visit Lady Flora, but it's by then it's June... She's on her deathbed, clearly emaciated, and Victoria tries to make amends, but uh, Flora Hastings dies. Uh, and I think uh, Victoria's haunted by it for the rest of her life, that she spoke ill of the dying gleefully. Uh, so that's one of the things the Duchess of Bedford gave to uh, to Britain was... Um, uh, guilty conscience yeah, to Queen, <laughs> Queen Victoria. That's right, for so, decades. So anyway, that's why she sparked the Boer War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you can all trace it back to this moment. <laughs> but the other thing that she gave uh, was, getting back to mealtime, happened in the 1840s when she was visiting the Duke of Rutland at Belvoir Castle in Leicestershire. Now, tea had been introduced to Europe surprisingly recently, late 17th century. Is that true? King Charles II of Portugal married, or no, sorry, King Charles II of England 
married Catherine of Braganza, a, a Portuguese queen. And I guess por- Portugal had the early access to all this African and and then New World stuff. Right. Um, because they had all the early navigators and explorers. But it didn't come to England until Charles II married a Portuguese woman, woman who was like, no, 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 I've got to have my my hot leaf water. This is what is done by the best people. Now, this was not connected to any kind of coffee boycott or coffee uh, coffee scandal? The tea predates the coffee in Europe, right? The coffee would have had to come from Brazil. Coffee's a New World plant. The tea, could, tea came from India, and I, I'm sure had always been known, you know, Constantinople into Rome. Um, but the trade of it uh, depended on these new Portuguese trade routes of the... 16th and 17th centuries. So, you know, tea became just from some un, this unknown thing that you would put leaves in hot water and and get a little pick me up became became very quickly went from just uh, uh, a a totally exotic weird thing to a novelty to a fad to mm. basically today what it is the basis of British culture such right. as it is. Tea Tea. You must have your. It, start, um, it started the uh, revolution. The Minutemen were ready on the move. They they needed they needed their tea just as they were British subjects at the time. Right. You know, like anything that messed with tea was a big deal, and I don't think it's an accident that that was the particular bit of foreign policy and taxation policy that really stuck in the colonist crowd because it, in just a hundred years it went from the hot new thing at court that Catherine of Braganza had brought from Portugal to. Um, just a staple of of British life and, and sociality. Uh, and of course, in Victoria's era, when it uh, it's a symbol of her empire, you know, the... Right, the the universality of it. She, from our... East fr- meets West. Yes, and fr- from our tea, pl- you know, it, from our bustling and affluent tea plantations in, in India and all these other benighted parts of the world that we've brought God and Queen and country to, um, it's a symbol of British dominion over... Asia and over the seas. Right. Uh, so for the last, you know, century, 150 years, you know, tea has slowly been catching on. Um, but that's tea, the beverage tea, the tea was not really spoken of much as a meal. I mean, Oh, I see. Having tea, meaning tea and if you were having tea, that means, you know, you might be drinking a cup of tea in addition to what you're doing, but not having a repast in the afternoon. It's not part of, and it's not part of the day. You know, there's not a, there's not a tea time even. Right. um, Even though tea is being drunk. But in the 1840s, um, while visiting Leicestershire, it appears that Anna Maria Stanhope, the Duchess of Bedford is going through a hard time. Uh, Maybe she's still, feel some guilt over her treatment of Lady Flora Hastings. I don't know. Yes. But her descriptions of the visit make it seem like it's about as dreary as the Downton Abbey trailer. She's uh, languishing. She describes a sinking feeling that comes over her every afternoon, which, you know, in our modern language, you might recognize as possibly something that she should talk to a therapist about. You right. Know, like, is she depressed? Although in our modern language, you are completely forbidden from having sympathy for rich people. <laughs> so... Oh, you have a sinking feeling. Maybe you should just go ride your polo ponies and count your jewels in your tiaras. So she's sitting up uh, having ennui, rich people ennui. She has rich people ennui. Yeah. RPE. She's got a bad case of RPE. And as a result, she needs something to break up these long, lonely afternoons. I guess they eat, they eat uh, supper there late. Right. 
Um, she should try eating gems like I do. They fill you with. <laughs> but then she wouldn't have her gems anymore. Oh, yeah, well. I don't know. Can you, can, can you always just keep eating and excreting gems? Yeah. As far as I, I mean, every time I eat a gem, a, a little 100 appears over my head. <laughs> bling, bling, bling. <laughs> Uh, so she starts inviting some of the ladies up to her chambers where they have Darjeeling tea. Nice. The, 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 the drink that's universally accepted as what the rich ladies drink. Right. Uh, but she's also, she's also a little peckish because supper is served much later than her custom at, at the Duke's castle. And so she also serves some little cakes, some little sandwiches to a small circle of friends. With the cut, cross cut off. Right. Little petty fours. Right. Uh, and of course, this is no surprise to any of us who know the custom of... English afternoon tea, that's exactly what you eat. Bread and butter, little sandwiches, little pastries, and uh, a pot of tea. But this didn't exist at the time. Nobody this, was, this was a revolution. Right. She's, she's just kind of inventing, like, it, it's like the person we all know who's like, guess what? I have a friend like this. We're going to have, we're going to cook food from all the countries of the world in order. Uh, this week is, Af- this month is Afghanistan month. Oh, I thought. Um, I thought next I thought, month it's at your house and we're having Albanian food. Then I it's thought, Algerian food in June. I imagined it was one event. All the countries in order. And I was like, how do you order the countries? <laughs> by size? By There's 180 <laughs> tables here. Uh, no, but do you, do you know people like this yeah. who always have some idea? It's yeah. going to be so fun. We're going to work through every uh, coupon in this book and we're going to go to every restaurant on Capitol Hill in alphabetical order or... Uh, Here's a fun new thing. We're doing a book club, but we're going to read only books that are out of print or... I told you that it's exhausting. when my mom moved to Seattle, she uh, she found a phone book, ripped uh, oh, the white pages, ripped the page out that had the fo- every church in Seattle and began at the top and went to a service. You did just, tell me this. Just made it her plan. I'm going to go to a service at every church in Seattle. And she did. She, did she get to the Zoroastrians at the went, end? <laughs> she went all the way. She's... <laughs> She spent uh, she spent a, a few hours with every single denomination in town. She should write she should write a book like because that's the trend in uh, well for a while it was the trend in publishing to do these kind of faddish things right. you know like I ate a McDonald's hamburger every, every day, day for a year, for a year yeah. or uh, so this is her kind of her fun little novel afternoon thing that the smart people do and it really catches on everyone who's done this is like yeah I mean if you have the choice of not eating little sandwiches and pastries at four. Or eating little sandwiches and pastries at four, you're totally going to eat it. Why didn't we do this all the whole time? Have My, you ever have you ever had a the traditional English high tea? Yeah, afternoon tea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never done it at Tavern on the Green, but I uh, I've consorted with tea in the afternoon people. When when we're uh, like I, I've done it as a tourist, like I've done it in London because the kids think it's oh. so. I mean, it's just a chance. If you're a kid, you know what would be better than weird little sandwiches and then a bunch of like, cause they serve it on a, a multi-level tray, yeah. which is fun. That's cute. And you go to any of these nice tea places and it is 100% tourists. Now it's that's, that's who's eating. That's, that's who wants bad. to have high tea is, uh, Americans and Emiratis and Russians in, in London. The first time I realized I liked sandwiches, I think was as a result of a tea. Wait, what? As a kid, you I was... You didn't eat sandwiches for lunch? No, I was a picky eater. The only sandwiches I would eat were uh, like plain hamburgers or grilled cheese sandwiches. But I had never had a ham and cheese sandwich or a roast beef and cheese sandwich. And I was at... Your, your French dip line is like at 10 years old. Yeah. I was at some event that was some kind of like party at a, like a women's garden club. And they had those little multi-tier trays with little sandwiches with the crusts cut off and i ate one that was i think turkey cheese lettuce and mayonnaise 
and I thought I had never tasted something so good. <laughs> How old were you in the story? I don't know, 10 probably. <laughs> and after that, I was like, sandwiches. I'm going to call it the Roderick. I've invented it. <laughs> get me, get to me a sandwich. And I, I, I've loved every kind of sandwich ever since. The uh, I can I'm, name every sandwich. I mean, I, I'm not in love with the idea of afternoon tea. I mean, to me, it seems like a meal where if it didn't exist, you wouldn't invent it. Like I, I ate something at, I mean, if you're not on your weird clock, right. I ate something at one. I'm going to eat something at six. If I eat high tea, if I eat three little sandwiches and three little pastries at four o'clock. Three little birds. I'm not going to want three calling birds and four French hens. I'm not going to want dinner in two hours. But what if you have lunch at noon and dinner at 7.30? Yeah. I mean, if you're, I mean, you know, I remember living in Spain and watching people just start going, heading down to the restaurants and the plazas at 10 PM at night yeah. and thinking, this is for me. This is great. Yeah. And right. I guess that's true. If I wasn't, so maybe this is perfect for a non-breakfast person like me. Get up and eat something light and breakfast like around noon. I mean, get up at a normal time, but not eat until noon. Whatever you call normal, sure. Eat at noon. Have your high tea, have your clotted cream on scones at right. four, and then have dinner late. Yeah, your breakfast would be I'm just you're just pushing everything up four hours. Your basically. breakfast is two hot dogs. <laughs> My breakfast would not be two hot dogs, and but, then, but go on. And then at uh, at tea you have two donuts. And then you take a long nap, and then you wake up at 9, and then at 10 o'clock you have four pounds of lasagna, <laughs> and then at <laughs> 2 in the morning you have a big bowl of ice cream. This doesn't seem that healthy. And then you go dancing. Like, you should not be eating two donuts when you could have a bunch of little cucumber sandwiches. I guess. But, the, I mean... What it, if I slice the donuts and put cucumbers in them? It's a huge difference but across the Atlantic is the degree to which uh, tea and breaks for tea and scheduling around tea are just foundational to the British people now. Like, no matter where you work, like, you know, coffee breaks are observed in the U.S., but it's just, it's a way of speaking. It's like, um, you know, what did you do on your coffee break? I went to the restroom. I went to the drugstore. Right. Uh, you know, I, I checked my email. Whereas... In Britain, there is a tea tray, a tea break, and the tea trolley might come in with, with, with things on it during the during the World War One. This was kind of um, this was actually kind of a government program. Uh, people were very, this is the age of efficiency, and people were very worried about the munitions industry being affected by the industrial fatigue of of uh, people having to make bombs all day. And so, uh, a Bristol physiology professor named A. F. Stanley Kent was unless my notes are wrong and I just, he's, he's a professor AF. <laughs> this guy is erudite AF. He's dispatched to these factories to make, to see what they can, what he can do. And they, he says, Oh, you need to give the workers a tea break. And of course the factory owners, as you might recall from the mother Jones entry said, mm, no, actually we are not going to do that. We're going to just make them work instead. And he said, no productivity will go up. And they said, no, we'll be the judge of that. And he said, no, his Majesty's government will be the judge of that. Kapow. Yeah, you're getting shut down unless you give tea breaks. Like, you want to lose your, your military contracts? You need to give tea breaks. And so, you know, under the auspices of this kind of efficiency thinking and the crown, uh, tea breaks became just the de facto standard in British workplaces. And alive. Did, it, did productivity improve? I think it did. Uh, you know, I, I don't have A.F. Stanley Kent's 
numbers. I'm right. not. I'm not prepared AF. My, but my I think productivity he out to be improves, right. improves if I have a little tea break. Uh, I think it's really bad for my productivity to have. I, I do too many. Do you know people who do the small meal thing where they'll just eat like? Oh, I know. I've it's better it. to you need to eat eight small meals a day. I've That's what it. the body wants. I, I do it, and then I eat four thousand calories worth of spaghetti at eleven p.m. But what if you were speaking to to uh, sea creatures who are filtering krill into their baleen constantly? I mean, and or, they don't even know what it means to stop eating. Or maybe an ant colony you know, develops a singular intelligence and they're like, that's all we do all day is eat, you know, carry tiny bits of sugar back to the queen. Part of my organism is always eating all the time. And that's true of me. Part of my organism is always eating. Always eating. That's why I have the doughy, the doughy self you see before you. I mean, part of my organism is always eating its heart out. And that concludes the Duchess of Bedford. Entry 383.PR2301, certificate number 48479, 48479, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. Dude, you are, you are very sleepy right now. <laughs> He's not, John's not just doing whatever that was, a Dr. John impression. <laughs> he's also very, he's too sleepy to enunciate. In the unlikely event the social media still exists in y'all, y'all. Y'all play some Zydeco for y'all. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll have the Omnibus project. Our handles were Ken Jennings and John Roderick. Ow. I guarantee. <laughs> I was on Instagram. Uh... You can email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com. Support our Patreon. Patreon? <laughs> Patreon. What if they spell it wrong because they don't put in the letter N? Patreon. Name's right in it. N is right in it. <laughs> Patreon.com, the omnibus project. And you can email us. Uh, I said I don't ready. Physical mail. M- mail us stuff at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98166. 55. 5598155. Is this part of your character that he increases all numbers by one? I can't see anymore. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, you're a blind blues musician. Yeah, I just got it. And, uh, no, no, no. I'm just tired. And you go to Facebook and read it. And so forth. Y'all. Do it. Listeners. <laughs> Get on it. From our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization served. I don't even know how long we have until John falls asleep. That's true. We hope and pray that this world-ending catastrophe may never come. But if the worst comes soon, if it comes by tea time, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows... We hope to be returned to you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Why do you travel? To recover from heartbreak? To trace your DNA? Escape the internet? On our podcast, Away to Go, we've been exploring all the reasons we travel. 
I'm Geraldine Gerba. I'm Pavia Rosati. And together we're the founders of travel website Fathom. And we've already heard so many great stories. Such as an actress in rural Kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex. A graffiti artist tagging the islands of Southeast Asia. A producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert. Listen to A Way to Go on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.